you have your Bibles, you can turn into Luke chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 24. I'm going to go ahead and hop into it. So the parable of the wedding feast. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And when he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted the parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Let's say also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, of the, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come. And and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you. None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thank you, Jeffrey. I think that's one of the longer passages we've had somebody read. So as uh, we continue to move through the, the book of Luke, today's passage presents for us two parables of Jesus. Now, as I, as I looked at these two passages... Uh, and tried to get my head around what Jesus was teaching us, Uh, I decided to come at the passage a a little bit differently than I usually do, which can sometimes get you in trouble. But hopefully today uh, we keep our head above water. Um, You guys know that normally I like to come at a passage like this verse by verse. And you saw how much the Jeffrey read. So if we went through it verse by verse, we'd be here until tomorrow. So I decided that maybe we would take this a little bit uh, differently and we would address the principle that Jesus is teaching. And what Jesus is really teaching us about in these two parables is pride and humility. And what I hope we understand today 
is that pride and humility aren't merely opposites, okay? I hope we see that pride and humility actually work against each other, okay? So as I considered where to begin today, I thought uh, that I might look at how pride and humility affect a marriage, okay? I thought that this might help us see, if we look at how pride and humility affect a marriage, how it might impact our relationship with God. So that's where we're going to begin today. So I have this philosophy that I share in uh, marriage counseling quite frequently, and it's this. No one can take from you what you freely give. Okay, so just write that down. This needs to be in your notes. This is going to be something we're going to come back to frequently. No one can take from you what you freely give. Now, the idea here is to promote a spirit of generosity, a spirit of charity, and a spirit of humility in your marriage. Now, it's, it's my experience in, in marriage counseling uh, that when somebody is, is having an issue in a relationship, when somebody's having tension in the marriage, it usually comes from the fact that one or both parties in the marriage feels like the other is taking advantage of them. Somebody is taking advantage of someone, or both are taking advantage of each other, and that creates tension in the relationship. So what, what I, uh, I want to do today is explore an example for a minute that will um, maybe help you see what I mean. So let me give you a quick disclaimer real quick as we jump into this idea that nobody can take from you what you freely give. Uh, my, my disclaimer is this. I think it is wrong to take advantage of your spouse. I just I want you to know that. It is wrong to take advantage of your spouse. So when we look at this idea of nobody can take from you what you freely give, what I'm hoping we do is is not enable bad behavior. That's not what I'm asking for. But instead to choose to believe the best. So there's my disclaimer in the background. I'm not asking for you guys to enable bad behavior. I'm talking about choosing to believe the best. So let's, let's look through an example. So let's say there's a husband. And we're going to call this husband Steve. So Steve is feeling overwhelmed at work. He's really stressed out. And uh, when he gets home from all these extra hours that he's been working, he's working late, he's not getting home until 7.30, sometimes even 8 o'clock. He's just really uh, burning it. He is tapped out. He is just toast from all these hours. And when he comes home, he, he checks out and says, I don't have anything left in the tank. I am no longer putting in any effort. I'm checking out because I've earned it, okay? Now, his wife, let's call her Jane. Jane is feeling lonely and neglected because, frankly, her husband works late all the time, and she gets home from her job, and there's nobody there for hours. So she decides, all right, if he's going to be gone, he's not going to be around, then I'm going to do something for myself. So she decides she's going to start making coffee dates for after work with some friends. Or maybe she's going to take a class or exercise or, I don't know, go to a Bible study. The point is, she says, I'm going to use this time for myself. I'm home anyway. But what started to happen is when Steve got home, sometimes Jane still wasn't back from whatever she was doing. So he began to feel disappointed. So he decided that he would start asking her to do stuff that would tie up her afternoon and evening so that she would be home whenever he got home. And this created a, a sense of resentment in the relationship. You can just imagine how this goes. Steve actually becomes quite controlling, not letting his wife do what she wants. And then you know what Jane decides? Jane decides, you know what, he's taking advantage of me. I do all this stuff for the house, so I'm just going to quit doing it. 
I'm going to quit doing it so he can begin to appreciate all that I've done for him. Do you see, do you see how this is a recipe for disaster? Okay? We have two people who are in need, and both of them begin to take from the other to satisfy their own desires. In this little example, we have two people headed for disaster. And as each of them begin to take, what we see is demands become the norm. And once we begin to demand from each other, we are in trouble. Since every action and every kind word is demanded, no one can freely give anything to the other as a gift. And since every action and every kind word is fought for, then those actions and kind words can't be received as genuine. All kindness and expressions of affection are perceived with suspicion. The operating assumption in this relationship is that the other is just looking out for themselves. So let's go back to where we, where we started in this little example. And that's the idea that no one can take what's freely given. So if only Steve would just see his job as a gift to his family, as an opportunity to provide for them. If it is a gift, okay, if his work is a gift, then when he gets home, he's entitled to nothing. If it's a gift, then when he gets home, he's entitled to nothing. He still has to put out effort when he comes home. Because if it's not a gift, then it's an exchange of services. But if it's a gift, it's something he gets to give freely without expectation of anything back. Gifts don't come with price tags. So let's say that, that two days a week, Jane has dinner ready on the table when Steve gets home at 8 o'clock. Okay? Now, if Steve demands this, then Jane is simply doing what's expected. But if he demands nothing, then Jane is giving a gift, and Steve gets to be thankful, and he gets to receive that gift as an act of love. Similarly, if Jane can view the late hours as a gift to the family then her heart can pivot from resenting the job to appreciating Steve's sacrifice. With that frame of mind, the job isn't taking from her. Her husband is giving his time and energy to meet the needs of the home. Now, Jane may still choose to fill her time with things that she values, but she gets to receive that time as a gift rather than as her chance to take back what her husband's job has taken from her. Now, guys, I'm well aware that every single analogy breaks down. So if this was going to be a perfect analogy, Steve would truly have to prefer to be home rather than to be at work. If he prefers to be at work, that's a problem. Okay? The family would actually need him to work all those hours. If he doesn't need to work that much, maybe he shouldn't. Okay? So you can poke holes in this all you want to. I, I get it. Okay? So what's my goal here? My goal is to illustrate a point. This is where I need you guys to really listen in. The second you demand something, or the moment that you begin to take what you feel entitled to, you remove the opportunity to be grateful for what is received, and you rob the other person from the opportunity to give what you need as a gift. Let me say that again. 
the second you demand something or the moment you begin to take what you feel you're entitled to, you remove the opportunity to be grateful for what you receive and you rob the other person from the opportunity to give what you need as a gift. This is a recipe for indifference and discontent. Now, this, this whole scenario that I've described for you is centered on a view of the world that says you should get what you want even if it's at the expense of others. Okay, the, the, the worldview behind this type of scenario that I've described for you is a worldview that says you should get what you desire even if it's at the expense of others. Now, do you know what we call this, this kind of mindset? The Bible calls it pride. We are being prideful if we are seeking to get what we desire at the expense of others. I'm going to say it one more time and you can write it down. We are being prideful if we are seeking to get what we desire at the expense of others. This is not at all a recipe for the love of Christ. If we want to love the way Christ loved us, this is not the direction we could go. So before we get into the text of Luke, which I promise we are going to get into here in just a minute, okay, I want to read one of my favorite passages. And guys, I read this passage all the time, probably more than any other passage that I read here, because I, I love, I love to see the parallel between the way that Jesus uh, loves us, and I guess it's a contrast, actually. Uh, I love to see the way that, that we contrast selfishness against the selfless love of Christ. So let's look at the selfless love of Christ that we're commanded to have for each other. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Now, all this is talking about unity in the body of Christ as we model the love of Christ. Verse 3, how does Christ love? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just, I want you to look at that part right there. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. What's the definition of pride that I gave you? Pride is seeking to get what you desire at the expense of others. And what do we see the model of Christ in humility? Right here in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So how does this passage tell us to love each other? It says that real love looks to the needs of others first. Real love sees others as better than ourselves. Real love is loving as Christ loved us. Who, as the passage continues, says that Jesus stepped out of heaven, emptied himself, and clothed himself in humanity. Why? So that he could die in our place. Whose interests was he looking out for? Ours. You see, it all comes back to humility. Humility says, I don't deserve anything. Humility puts itself last. Humility puts itself in a position to receive gifts with grace 
and with gratitude. Now, with this kind of setting over us, let's begin to move in to Luke. Our passage in Luke 14 uh, exposes two opportunities for us. We have the opportunity to receive Christ's invitation with humility, or we have the opportunity to reject Christ's invitation in our pride. In essence, our passage will give us a way to live, humility, and a way not to live, pride. Now, Jeffrey read for us verses uh, 7 through 24, and, and we get these two parables. There's the parable of the wedding feast, verse 7 through 11, and the parable of the great banquet in verses 12 through 24. But honestly, if we're going to understand these two parables, we need to take a step back to where we were in chapter 13. We need to look at the end of 13 and the beginning of 14 to really understand what these two parables are all about. So let's see if we can get our, our, our grasp on the setting. We'll move through this very quickly. So if you look at the end of chapter 13, there are a few rather odd verses here, verses that we don't talk about very often uh, that I think a lot of us aren't familiar with. And what we see in these few verses is that a few of the Pharisees actually give Jesus a warning that Herod Antipas wants to kill Jesus. So they come and, and they give him this warning. Now remember, we've talked about this over the last several weeks, that Jesus' eyes were on Jerusalem. He's not there yet, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. So he's not in Jerusalem yet, but he's on his way there. So uh, as they give him this warning... Jesus assures the people that he's fine, and then in kind of a part ironic and yet part serious way, Jesus basically says, I can't die till I'm in Jerusalem anyway, okay? And then he goes on and he explains this. Jesus says that the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem have always wanted to kill those who have been sent by God. This is not new. The leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem have always wanted to kill those people who were sent by God. So Jesus then makes the point that he wants to care for his people. He wants to lead Jerusalem and the people of God into the kingdom of God. But they are obstinate, and guess what? They are prideful. They are obstinate and prideful, and they can't see the truth. And the simple fact remains that the leaders in Jerusalem have always wanted to kill the people who declare the truth of God. So what we see in this little passage is that Jesus condemns the pride of Jerusalem who would rather kill the prophets than admit that they were wrong. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. He's condemning the pride of Jerusalem who would rather kill the prophets than admit they were wrong. From there, we move into the beginning of chapter 14. And this sets the setting for the two parables where the parables are told. And Jesus is invited over to a man's, uh, one of the Pharisees' house for dinner. And I suppose this is an honor, but also it's a trap. The goal here is to trick Jesus into saying something that will get him in trouble or do something that will get him in trouble. So they're at this meal, and this meal is held on the Sabbath. And they also invited a sick man to this dinner. And the question is, will Jesus heal this guy on the Sabbath? Guess what? He heals him, right? So he heals this guy on the Sabbath. Verse 6 tells us that after Jesus gave his explanation for healing on the Sabbath, the people there had no reply to what Jesus had to say. Now, what we see here is another example of Jesus drawing out and exposing pride. These guys could not humble themselves to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. 
You see, it takes far less faith to disprove that somebody's the Messiah than it does to actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So these people would rather ignore the miracle than admit who Jesus was. They would rather hold their own beliefs about Jesus in their prideful hearts than admit that they were the ones who had misapplied teachings about the Sabbath. To say that Jesus had come and healed this man justly on the Sabbath is to admit that they had been teaching about the Sabbath incorrectly. And they are not going to admit that. You see, pride says, my way is right. But humility does not insist on having its own way, but yields to the truth. Now, do you see how this this idea of pride is firmly set as the setting as we move into the two parables? So as we look at these parables, I want you to think back to the marriage principle that I gave you earlier. No one can take from you what you freely give. No one can take from you what you freely give. So in verses uh, 7 through 11, Jesus teaches about humility by talking about seats of honor in a wedding. Now, rather than rereading the parable, I kind of want to do something a little different. I I just want to take that parable and put it in our, our own setting and imagine our weddings and how they work. So I'm sure many of you guys have been to lots and lots of weddings Um, But we do something very similar even today. I want you to think about the kinds of wedding receptions that we have. So we tend to use place cards, right, to identify places of honor. Like it'll have a name on it or or it'll say reserved. I just want you to imagine that those aren't there. Okay, Imagine that those aren't there. So at our wedding receptions, we often have a table up front. And I say often because anymore people do whatever. You can't count on anything at a wedding. Okay, so often uh, people have a wedding up, uh, table up front for the wedding party. And all the attendants, the bridesmen and the grooms, uh, the bridesmaids? The bridesmaids and the groomsmen. I've never seen a, uh, you know what, that's not true. I was going to say I've never seen a bridesman. But I was a bridesman for mom's wedding, so I, I've got to be careful there. <laughs> okay, so anyway, you, you, you have them all lined up there at the front, and the whole wedding party's up, up there, and the attendants set. Uh, with the bride and the groom at the head table. Then how's it usually go? you got the tables close by, and who sits there? The parents of the bride and the parents of the groom and the brothers and sisters, and all the family sits up close. And then, you know, further back, nobody cares. It's a big mix mash of who sits behind the family. But that's how it typically goes at a wedding. So I want you to imagine then that, that the, uh, the groom's good friend from high school comes. Now, he's, he's not so close to the groom that he's in the wedding party, but he's a good friend. He, he ran around with them for years. And so the wedding party's getting their pictures taken, and this guy says, I want to make sure and sit with my friends. So he goes and he sits at the head table. Nobody thinks too much about it because they know this guy, and they're like, yeah, you know, he's a friend. So then the, then the, the host of the, the dinner comes in, and he's going to announce the, the, the couples and make introductions to everybody, and he sees this friend sitting at the end of the table. And he goes, and he walks over to the guy, and he goes, yo, there's only enough chairs up here for the, for the wedding party. You can't sit here. So then the guy has to do the walk of shame past all the tables where the family's all full, and he has to sit in the back with the second cousins and the work friends, right? Okay? This is the same kind of thing that Jesus is, is, uh, is talking about. If, if this friend would have just sat in the back from the beginning, once they're all introduced, they'd look around and they'd say, hey, where's our friend? And they'd go grab a chair and probably bring him up front. 
But instead, this guy has to do the walk of shame all the way to the back. Jesus ends the parable with verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus uses this parable here to show us somebody who takes what he's desired. This friend takes the spot of honor at the head table. And if he would have kept that spot, he would have taken the seat of one of the groomsmen. He would have taken what didn't belong to him. This is a person who thinks more highly of himself than he should. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, gives us a warning and a suggestion to be more self-aware. Paul says this in Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. As followers of Jesus Christ, our default position should be one of humility. We should defer to others and look to serve them and their best interests. Paul says the same kind of thing again in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. Galatians 6, verse 3 says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If we're going to follow Christ, if he is going to be our master, if he's our Lord, then we must remember what Jesus said after he washed the disciples' feet. He said, no servant is greater than his master. And Jesus is one who constantly lowered himself for the sake of others. If Jesus is a humble servant, then how much more should we be humble servants as well? We must remember that we have no right to claim or demand anything in the kingdom of God. We only have the opportunity to come into the kingdom because Christ offered us an invitation. The kingdom of God is never taken. The kingdom of God can only be received. So in humility, joyfully sit at the lower table. We need to come to Christ and into his kingdom with great humility. We need to have the same humility, even here and now, as we live our life, as we approach the kingdom of God. We should live with this spirit of humility. Now, from this idea of taking the lower seat, of, of waiting to be exalted, Jesus pivots right into uh, the next parable. So, uh, from here, we see that what he says is that pride gets in the way of receiving the gift that God has offered to us. Pride gets in the way of receiving the gift that Christ offers to us. So as he continues, Jesus is telling them that he is offering them an invitation to his kingdom. And he says there that they could never repay it. You know, invite those who, when you invite them, could never repay the thing is that to these he was talking to in their pride, okay, not only do these guys think that they can repay the invitation, we're going to see that Jesus says that they refuse the invitation altogether. 
Pride has an uh, elevated sense of self that says, I can probably pay this back. I can invite them over. I can do the same thing for them that they've done for me. Okay? And yet, at the same time, pride also says, you know what? This is nothing special. I've got better things to do. So let's go ahead and jump into the meat of the parable that starts, and I am going to read this one, starting in verse 15 through 24, and let's uh, unpack what's there. Luke 14, 15 through 24. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled, and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you command has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So a person at the dinner with Jesus makes a statement. And Jesus doesn't disagree with this statement. Rather, Jesus uses his, this, this parable that we just read to put that statement in the context of the conflict between pride and the kingdom of God. So this person says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay, that's how this exchange starts here. Jesus gives this parable then to understand that the word everyone might might not be as simple of a concept as one might think. So what's he say? Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean by everyone? And so Jesus begins to tell this parable. And we see him tell the parable again in a banquet setting. And I think that's fitting because where is Jesus? He's having a meal with the Pharisee. They're all sitting around. So one one meal parable followed by another meal parable. All right, so there's this banquet, and the master sends out invitations to many. And verse 18 says, but they all alike began to make excuses. Now, if we wanted to, we could probably spend the next 30 minutes breaking down these three uh, excuses that are given, and we could probably find some symbolism that would be important and relevant to our lives. I'm sure we could do that, okay? But I don't think that those excuses really matter that much. What we need to see is they refused the invitation. So Jesus is telling those in his presence that God has made a great banquet. And I think what we're supposed to see is that God has made this great banquet for his people, that he has made this great banquet for the Jews, including the Jews in Jerusalem, the same Jews that want to kill him, okay? I think this is a drawback all the way to the end of chapter 13. 
And somehow, these people and their pride made excuses to not come. They denied an invitation into the kingdom. So sure, sure, everyone who eats bread in the kingdom is blessed, but you actually have to come to the dinner, right? So they've been invited, but they say no. So Jesus isn't necessarily arguing with this guy, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, sure, yeah, I've invited you, and you've not come. I've invited you, and in your pride, you've made excuses. You had an opportunity, but you had something better to do. You had to go and wash your hair, or I don't know, whatever it could be, right? Like, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I have to go check on some oxes. Really? An invitation into the kingdom of God, and you've got to go check on some oxes? Now, I just want you guys to do uh, a, a quick little mental experiment with me, okay? I want you to imagine one of the greatest honors that you could ever imagine was extended to you. So think about that for a second. What would be the greatest honor that, that somebody could bestow upon you through an invitation? Now, as I thought about this, uh, uh, for me, it would probably be the opportunity to, to speak with some of my, like at a, at a conference that featured some of my, you know, like hero pastors. That would be so cool to be able to go and, and preach alongside these guys and try to edify. Like, that would be such a huge honor to me. Now, I'm not sure what your honor might be, but I want you to think about that, all right? The greatest thing you could imagine the opportunity to do, and this invitation is made to you, and you say, no thanks, I'm busy. No thanks, I got stuff to do. Now listen, I have no right to think that I'm entitled to speak at such a conference that I mentioned a minute ago, or whatever you may choose. The, the only way I could ever be there is with an invitation given by grace and pity, right? Okay? So how could I ever turn down an offer like that? I could only turn it down if I had an overvalued sense of self and an undervalued view of the opportunity. I could only turn it down, did you hear me? If I had an overvalued sense of self and an undervalued view of the opportunity. And do you know what that's called? Pride. That is called pride. Pride overvalues self. Pride undervalues gifts. You see, it's not a gift if I'm entitled to it. Do you see that? If it's what I deserve, it's not a gift. It's mine by right. I should get to take it. I don't even, I can't even think of an example. The closest thing I can think of is like air. I'm entitled to that. It's just as much mine as it is yours. I get to breathe it, right? Okay? But so many things in life we're not entitled to. So we should receive them with gifts. Pride also assumes that I, I might deserve an opportunity like this in the future. Pride says, oh, you know, they're going to want me. They'll ask me next year, right? It assumes that opportunity will come again. Just think about that. They don't see it as a once-in-a-lifetime. I'm so awesome. Everybody's going to want me, okay? 
Now, I want you to think back to chapter 12, what we talked about a few weeks ago as we looked at one of Jesus' other parables, the parable of the rich man who had all that stuff and he built the barns. And what does Jesus say? He says that the Lord says, you fool, you fool, your very life will be demanded from you tonight. We're not promised another opportunity. I love that throughout this past several chapters, we've seen the urgency mentioned over and over again. We're not promised another opportunity. We're not entitled to the opportunity we've received. We have to see it as a gift. It is pure pride to say, I deserve a second chance at this kind of opportunity. You see, it's my belief that Jesus, as he's telling the story of the great banquet, has a bigger context in mind than a single meal. I think that Jesus is talking about the final coming of the kingdom as well. So he's talking about it presently, but also finally. Jesus is talking about the final judgment. So the master of the banquet says, go and get all the unworthy, get all those who are humble, get all those who are in need. God sees, uh, he says, go and get those who see it as an honor to receive this invitation. Go and get those who would not refuse this invitation. But those who have rejected their opportunity when the kingdom comes, what does Jesus say? They said, no. What does Jesus say at the end of the parable? He says that they will not taste in his banquet. That level of pride denies the kingdom. And as they deny the kingdom, Jesus says, there's no opportunity for you to taste the banquet. Jesus says, Fine. If the ones I prepared this feast for are too prideful, and again, I think that in particular he means the religious leaders of the Jews, if they're too prideful, then go and get the humble. Go get the ones who know how good of an opportunity this is. And what we see in this parable is that Jesus exalts the lowly. He elevates those who did not elevate themselves. And those who did elevate themselves to say that they can be excused, he puts them to shame and says they will have no taste in the banquet. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be lowly of spirit with the poor than divide the spoil with the proud. I want us to think about where Jesus was and the trap that was just set for Jesus in this healing of, of the man on the Sabbath and how admitting, admitting that this was okay, that this miracle was done justly is to admit that they had been misinterpreting the laws of the Sabbath forever. It is admitting that they were wrong. To admit that Jesus was Messiah and that he had the authority to make this kind of declaration is to admit that they were wrong. You see, pride cannot admit when it's wrong. Pride cannot admit when it's in need. Pride cannot receive a gift with gratitude because somehow pride thinks it's entitled to whatever it gets. Pride pride feels entitled to the things it desires. So pride takes what it wants at the expense of others. 
Guys, what I want you to see is that pride sets you at odds with the kingdom of God. Pride says, I deserve my citizenship in the kingdom of God. Pride says, I can come into the kingdom by my own will, by my own work, in my own time. That's what pride says. Pride says, it's all about me. But humility, humility is quick to recognize just how great its need is. Because it sees its need is great and its inability to achieve anything on its own, it, it receives whatever it gets with thanksgiving because humility knows it doesn't deserve it. It gets to be a gift. Do you see that? When you're not entitled to it, when you get it, it's a gift. And when we get a gift we're not entitled to, what does that promote in us? A spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving, or should. When we receive what we don't deserve, we have to recognize I don't deserve this in order for us to be thankful and, and praise God for what he has given. And I started out today's message by drawing out a principle that I teach in marriage counseling, and that's that no one can take from you what you freely give. Okay, no one can take from you what you freely give. Church, the kingdom of God is not something you can pry out of God's hands. He freely gave it through the price of his very own son. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God. And because we can't earn it, okay, because, because we can't demand it, we can't take it from him, even if we wanted to. We can't. And yet, what does he do? He freely gives. And what's our response? All we can do is receive it with thanksgiving, by faith, trusting in his grace and mercy. Do you see how our pride gets in the way of our ability to receive an invitation into the kingdom? I want you to see, like, the whole idea, the whole concept of any kind of works-based salvation, this notion that you can be good enough, this notion that I've done enough, I've, I've been a moral person, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't cheat on my spouse, like, I'm a good person. The notion that you can be good enough to earn a place in heaven is founded in pride. The notion there is that I can take it, that I can beat down the walls of the kingdom and climb into the kingdom of heaven. You can't. The walls are too tall. They're too thick. But the gates are open. And people are trying to climb over the sides. And, and what he said is, come, I've invited you. You don't deserve to be here, but I love you. I love you. You matter to me.
And so my grace and mercy is extended to you. All you have to do is receive it. Believe I am who I said I am. Turn from your sin and walk forward in that trust. Walk away from your pride. In order to do that, though, you have to admit something. I am a sinner. I am a sinner and I don't deserve this. And I could never climb over those walls on my own. And you know what that takes? Humility. Pride is at war with the kingdom of God. And the only way in is low. Following the example that Jesus Christ set for us. Would you pray with me as the praise team comes? Father, we thank you and praise you for the way you love us. That you set the example for us. There is nothing we could ever do to repay you for your love, so all we can do is say thank you and receive it. Father, it is my prayer that you would help us to be a thankful people. Lord, give us great gratitude for your grace and mercy. Father, when we think we have done enough to deserve it, remind us of who you are. Remind us of how tall the walls are to your kingdom, but remind us how you are the door and we come into the kingdom through you, not over the walls. Lord, I pray that as we uh, go go into this time of response, you would work on our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we sing these last two songs, our altar is open. The altar is open as a time to respond. I want you to be thinking as we sing these two songs, where is pride in my heart? Do I find it hard to be thankful? If you find it hard to be thankful, then perhaps you're you're struggling with pride. Do you find yourself consistently feeling cheated or, or feeling like you're getting the worst of a situation? Then, then perhaps you're struggling with pride. Do you feel like God owes you something? Then, then perhaps you're struggling with pride. My encouragement to you today is to lay that pride down at the altar. Ask him to remind you how, how much you need him. And I want you to reflect on one more thing. How has your pride kept you from acting humbling? humbly toward the people in your life? How is your pride leading you to demand things from others? How is your pride keeping you from receiving acts of love from others as a gift? How is your pride getting in the way of you having a healthy relationship with the people you love? However you need to lay your pride down, it's my prayer that you do business with the Lord as we sing.